After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders. And the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who sits, sorry, pardon me, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key 
to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them and the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for my brother Paul. And Lord, I know despite all the things that are going on in his life and have been, Lord, um, he has made himself available today to share your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak through him and that you would give us ears to hear. We thank you for the presence of your spirit in us all, enabling the speaker and the hearer. And Lord, we ask that you would reveal your will and your purpose to us. Because your word is true, and you are worthy to be praised. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Back in the MC days. Test, test, one, two. Microphone test. <laughs> Can you hear me, everyone? Yeah, yeah. yeah we can. But oh. Shall I just crack on? Or? All right, cool. So, thanks, Pastor E, for reading that long bit of scripture, 36 verses. Um, so, this will be an overview. Um, I won't be walking through every single verse. Um, time will just not permit. I mean, I did try a, a script, and I got to like 4,000 words on like chapter 19, and I wasn't even finished at chapter 19. And for me, when I do about 3,000 words, that's about half an hour. 
So things were not looking too great. But anyway, I'd like to title or give you a big idea from, from our text here from Revelation 19 and 20. And the title of my sermon is The Penultimate of Human History or the End. The Penultimate of Human History or the End. So you have two alternatives. For those who are believers, this is merely the beginning of a... Well, hopefully not a beginning of that. (laughs) This is the beginning of a forever with God and man. Um, The ending or the outcome, it really depends on do you have the seal of God or is your life marked with the mark of the beast? Are you a part of the beautiful bride just spoken here or are you a part of Babylon, the prostitute? Are you at the wedding feast of the Lamb, or are you a part of the great supper just spoken of, which you do not want to be a part of? Is your name in the book of life, or when the books are opened, will you be judged according to what's in those books? And so, I don't know if you've ever watched these new programs now where you have... um, like Netflix Interactive, so you get to decide or choose the ending. So I haven't watched loads of these shows or programs, but um, with my stepson Luke um, on Netflix Interactive, there's this show called You Versus Wild, and this is Bear Grylls who's out in the wild, and at the scene there comes a survival conundrum. He's at the top of a mountain, and he's like, do I A, abseil down this way, or do I be glide down through? And you get to sort of 10 seconds to make a decision. And um, I'm always getting us killed when, <laughs> you know. And so the choices you make sort of alter the future, right? But the difference here is that with that game, we don't really, unless you're knowledgeable, um, you don't have the benefit of foresight as to what's going to happen with your choices. Where with God's word, we have the benefit of foresight for a vision, for a prophecy, for apocalyptic literature. God has spoken to us concerning things of the end and our involvement in them. I want you to think of uh, what makes up a great fairy tale or a romance story, or the components in them. Generally, you have a prince-to-be or king-like figure who's in love with a woman, and they're betrothed, and in their quest for love, obstacles happen where the woman betrothed gets kidnapped uh, by an evil captor, and there's beasts, and there's dragons, and at the end, there's an epic battle, and the, the would-be prince comes into his own and overthrows all the enemies and rescues the damsel in distress. This is that image here in Revelation 19 and 20. In fact, throughout the Bible, isn't our relationship with the Lord described in marital language that we are in covenant with him, that we have relationship and union with him. And so in the Old Testament, when Israel is unfaithful, God can speak of her as a spiritual adulterer. God describes himself as a cuckold at times, someone who's cheated on by his wife. Well, in this story of Revelation, who is the damsel in distress? It's the church. As she navigates in the world in Babylon, where in John's day, Christians are being killed by the Roman Empire. And as we, maybe not so extreme in our context, I mean, I don't know if you know anyone in in England who who has literally been killed. Um, This is one extreme of that. 
intense confrontation and persecution from the world in Babylon, but one way or another, we are engaged in a war. We in- Babylon seduces us. Babylon is tempting us to be unfaithful. And the temptation for us is to, to doubt. Is the Lord going to come through? Is he, is he coming? The, the, the thing is, in, in, in our story, is we often are the ones who get ourselves into the slavery into captivity and so this story speaks of encouragement for us as believers that the Lord will come that he will rescue us and this is encouragement to us and if you're maybe struggling I don't know where you're at right now life throws curveballs and we struggle Babylon is this alluring powerful temptation that calls out to you to rebel against Christ, to be unfaithful to him. This is a call to stay faithful, hang on, don't give up, stick with Jesus. And for those who don't know him, the call to repent and put your faith and trust in him. So, Revelation 19 from verses 1 to 10 really clang or stick on to what we looked at last week from Revelation chapter 17 and 19, which is the judgment on Babylon. And in those chapters, you get the response of those who have invested their whole life in Babylon, in the world. They are just living for now and there's weeping And there is mourning. But now, in chapter 19, we get a picture of the response from heaven of Babylon's overthrow. And it is one of celebration. It is one of rejoicing. Why are they rejoicing? Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. Finally, The day has come, the day of justice has finally come where the world and those who are in opposition to God have met the day of justice. The Lord has come and more specifically for this context, you remember back to the fifth seal when it is opened, those crying, how long, O Lord, will you avenge those who have beheaded us, those who have done wrong to us. Well, this is that time where God has brought justice. And isn't it a great thing to hope for that one day, there will be a day when everything will be put right. The world right now is in desperate need for someone to come in and do things right do things justly. How many of us in life have experienced an injustice? And if we haven't experienced it personally, we've watched movies or we've seen things in history that are riddled with injustice that just stick in your stomach. And the thing is, you feel so helpless. You feel so powerful, uh, powerless to do anything when you are overcome with a sense of injustice Well, God remembers, and God is true and just. And so the reason for celebration here is vindication for God, is vindication for his people, and it is judgment against Babylon for rejecting God and for rejecting his people. We see here at this celebration, you have the great multitude. We've seen this before in Revelation. And you have the 24 elders and the four living creatures. The 24 elders, we've had this explained before, but could be a picture of 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. So this idea of the complete number of God's people and the four living creatures are representative of all of God's creation. So the idea is you have all of God's people and all of 
creation bowing and worshipping before God for the day of justice, the day of judgment has come. And there is relief, there is celebration. And then from verses 6 to 10, we get the bride waiting for her bridegroom. Back to that imagery of the marital relationship between God and his people. And the good news of rejoicing here is that, unlike of old, where because of sin, we can be unfaithful. The Bible talks about in our relationship with God, sometimes of divorce, of desertion. But this is a time where there won't be that anymore. Look at verse 7. For the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure, bright and pure. So we have been granted clothing by the Lord Jesus. You see the contrast of the women here from Babylon where she is, her deeds are violence. She is drunk with the blood of the saints. But the saints are cleansed by the blood of Christ. And such is the scene and celebration that John is overwhelmed. He falls before an angel. Just before that, the angel says to him, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. What does that mean? Does it mean that the other words are less true? Um, no, I think that it's of emphasis of importance that this is true. This is something to hold on to. As we go through life and we struggle, and we meet temptations of various kinds, various sufferings that remember this, that a day of celebration, a day of intimacy. We all long for a time where there will be no more enemies, there will be no more barriers between us and the Lord. Have you ever just struggled there one, one day and just mourned over your sin or how you keep failing this is a day where that won't be an issue anymore. The relief, there will just be complete intimacy between Jesus and his bride. This is really wonderful news. And John is so overwhelmed that he falls before the angel. But the angel says to him, you must not do that. Then we get this peculiar phrase for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, which I think just means that anyone who knows Jesus is able to speak for him. So whether an angel or an apostle like John, you know, don't worship me, you know. So from the imagery of the wedding, you would think that it would move on to the wedding, but what we get now from verses 11 to 21 is this picture of Christ. And I want to spend a little bit of time here um, because this really, from verse 11, is the fulfillment of that vision you saw in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. You remember when a door is open and John gets a glimpse at the heavenly throne room and there is the lamb being worshipped. Well, here in verse 11, this isn't a door being opened. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And so here we get from verses 11 to 16, a real portrait of who this figure is. And from 16 to 21, the power of this figure. So we want to spend a bit of time, I want to spend a little bit of time here. So heaven is open. So this is the fulfillment now where 
the figure comes forth and he's on a white horse. Why a white horse? A white horse signifies victory. In the first century, when a Roman general or commander would go out to a battle, when they go back to the imperial, they would ride back on a white horse. So you might see them from afar, see the white horse, and victory is won. Well, the battle hasn't even begun. And Jesus is on a white horse already. Victory guaranteed, certain. Supreme authority. We see some of the appearances here, very similar to the descriptions in chapter 1, that his eyes are like flames of fire. You get this idea that there's no gaze. He sees you. He sees everything. There's nothing that escapes him. Nothing that escapes his uh, vision. And on his head are many diadems, many crowns. So he's not just the king of one place, like the, the king, queen of England with one crown. He has many crowns. He is the king of everywhere. I'd love to see Pontius Pilate at this scene. So you are a king. Yeah, that king. Many diadems. He's the king of you. He's the king of me. He's the king of the cosmos. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. This speaks of his utter dependability. He will come back. He is faithful. This is encouraging in a time where there is so much deceit and dishonesty. Who do you believe? Sometimes you see news outlets. Should I go on Russia Today or should I go on the BBC? <laughs> I'll get two different opinions. And sometimes things are so complicated, you're just like, you pick a side and then you hear the history and, and then you're like, hold on. But he is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war, just war. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, commentators have had a field day with this one, and I sort of went on a rabbit hole, but rabbit holes are only good if you get to the end of them. And um, I think it, it just means what it says. That he has a name that he only knows. This speaks of his transcendence. See, we only know through revelation. We don't know God. We can't know him. But he knows everything about us. It's one of the great follies of our time that we think we get to put God on the witness stand or the trial box and question him. Or, I don't like to think of God like that. I like to think of God this way. Well, it's, if you can come to a knowledge of God by your own intellect, then that God is too small, since he's smaller than your intellect and not worthy of the title of God. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Some suggest that because the battle hasn't commenced, this speaks of his blood on the cross. You know, his atoning work, his death for us, could be, I don't know. Um, given the context, the fact this is about war, and the strong allusions to Isaiah 63, about him treading the winepress of the fury of God Almighty, this will be the blood of his enemies. This is quite a different picture to his first coming, right? You know, it's... Hmm. On his robe and on his fire are names written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Normally they would have the sword on the fire. But he has his name. 
his titles. See, what we need to understand is names in the Bible generally refer to nature. In English, we don't always carry this. It's, it's late. Sometimes we have it, but it's generally just labels. So if we say like Paradise Street, we don't actually mean you're in paradise, right? <laughs> Especially in Stockwell. <laughs> in it, Brother Andrew? <laughs> but, but this is the thing. His, his names and titles here speak of his nature. It's who he is. And by the name which he has called the word of God. We've seen this before in, in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. This is Jesus' authority. This is his weapon. He doesn't have to come with no sword. He just speaks. He just speaks. Let there be light, and there was light. So here's the portrait of our Messiah, Jesus, the one who's going to come and rescue us. And in verses 17 onwards, we see his power. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. You see the contrast here of the supper of the Lamb. Now you get this supper. And this is a supper of human flesh. It says the flesh of kings, captains, mighty men, everyone's there. And especially those, or definitely those, who have rejected Christ, have rejected the Messiah, and have sided with Babylon. They live for now. And verse 19 is the utter foolishness of man. I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. I mean, it's just foolishness that all the people here will gather to battle against the Son of God. There's no contest. Who are you fighting? He holds the universe by the word of his power. You defeat him, we're all finished. There's no battle here. And the beast was captured. Done. In a single hour, Babylon's doom will come. How majestic. I was at the top of the Shard yesterday, um, <laughs> just overseeing, and... Uh, I don't know, for some reason I couldn't help but think of the Tower of Babel. <laughs> and you just look out and, um, yeah, it's, it's, we're like this though, aren't we? This is what man does. He resists God's will. He rebels in foolishness. You can't defeat God. He wins. And yet, we resist him sometimes in our lives, don't we? We resist his authority. Come out of her, my people. The beast was captured along with the false prophet. And they're thrown into a lake of fire. The imagery here of this feast of flesh and birds coming to gorge. It's just horrific. It really is horrific. I mean, lake of fire? I'll let your imagination run with that, but I'm sure in the Bible times when it was written and you know, man is not unfamiliar with horrific images, but yet the scale of this is huge. And in our modern times with images of bombs and wars and holocaust, Im holocaust images of flesh just on top of... That is the fate of those who make God their enemy, who refuse Christ. Verse 
Thank God for his patience, right? That he gives us time. This is his second coming. But his first coming, he came and he gave his life for us, right? And he's clothed us in him. So moving on to chapter 20 from verses 1 to 10. This is that chapter that I didn't really want to preach on. <laughs> when I got the, 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 the rotor through and I scrolled <laughs> to see where I, where I might be picked, um, this was not the one I wanted. <laughs> the reason being is there's so many different opinions on it. I'm there in the library, I've got this commentary, I've got this commentary, I've got this commentary, and they all disagree. You know? I'm not a scholar. <laughs> Nevertheless, so Revelation 20, this, the, the millennium, we get another um, vision, then I saw, right? And I just want to say that from, from a point of Christian unity perspective, that um, whatever our views are on eschatology or end times, that I don't feel these are matters pertaining to like salvation or things that we should be dividing over or churches splitting over. And I've got to say that because sadly that is the case sometimes. When I was first a Christian, all I knew was one view. And if you did not have that view, well, you're a liberal. You don't take the Bible seriously, you know, and... I don't think that is in the spirit of unity. Maybe, maybe things are left obscure for a reason. The Lord wants us to dig deeper. Nevertheless, I'll briefly explain the three or maybe four dominant views, and then I'll say which one that I've landed on and apply that. And if you disagree with me, we can have a chat later over some tea or whatever. And, you know, but... The three main views over this uh, issue with the millennium really pertains to when does Christ come back and when does this period start? And so you have one view that is the pre-millennial view that says that, and there were, there were really two within that camp. There's the dispensational type pre-millennial, um, which is that from chapter four onwards, I mean, the church is gone. This doesn't even apply to you until this comes back. And so Christ comes back, then the millennium happens. There's a literal 1,000 years, and then Christ comes, well, there's, Satan is released again, and there's another battle, and then the white throne judgment and the resurrection. That's one view. There's another view called classical premillennialism that doesn't take it so literally, but still thinks of... Christ coming back first, and then a period of a, it's not a literal period. We know that numbers in Revelation are symbolic. We've seen sevens, twelves, twenty-fours, tens. Um, and so they, they are consistent with that interpretive measure, but yet still see uh, two battles here. So the battle in Revelation 19 and the battle in Revelation 20 is, is two different battles. So there's a chronological order that they interpret this through. Then you have the A-mill position, which says that from the time of Christ's death and resurrection is the end times, and that this millennium spoken of here is now. It is the church age. It's the age of the church. And those that are seated are those in heaven now. And then there is another view called the post-millennial view that says that throughout his, at one time in history, um, the church will grow and get bigger and bigger, and then there'll be a perfect time, a millennium, and then Christ comes after. Um, now, from my perspective, looking at Revelation, um, and I could be wrong, um, when I take into account the biblical data, the Gospels, the Prophets, and specifically the genre type. 
I do land on an amoral perspective. This isn't literal chronological history. If, if you hear, then I saw, to be, then it happened, then it happened, then it happened, then you're going to come with these schemes and structures and very complicated ways of piecing together the book of Revelation. But I don't think that's what John is trying to do. It is progressive parallels. So when you get one vision, another vision, it is progressing the parallel. So as you go through, they intensify. But the whole book is about one thing, Christ's return through different visions, pictures. And so from my perspective, the battle in Revelation 19 and the battle in Revelation 20 is one, it's the one battle. It's the same battle. It's the same event, Christ coming back. There isn't two perusias. We just don't see, I, I just don't think we see that from the rest of Scripture. We get the present age, and then the end will come. The gospel will be preached to the ends of the world, and then the end will come. And so I will just preach from that perspective and give some application around this binding or Satan being bound for this period of a thousand years, which I'm not taking literally as 1,000, but as in a long period of time. Just like it says everywhere in Scripture that a, one day to the Lord is like a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years is like a day, right? So regarding the binding of Satan, you get a progressive view of his destruction. First, when Christ come through his death and resurrection, this was a big blow to Satan and his schemes. One of Satan's titles is accuser, right? So you get this idea of him approaching the heavenly courts and accusing people before God, right? But because of Jesus' death and resurrection, accuse me of what? How? And so he's thrown down. We saw that in Revelation 12, him being thrown down. You see Jesus says it in Luke when they are, the disciples are expelling demons. And he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven. So this is the idea that he can't go up there no more. He can't approach God and accuse me of what? And I think we need to own this and hold this in as believers because sometimes we just beat ourselves up, don't we? With, with guilt and Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has won the victory. The promise from Genesis 3 that one will come and crush the head of the serpent. Jesus has brought a major blow and that way has bound him. More specifically in this passage, he's been bound so that he would deceive the nations no longer. And so before Christ and the Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit, really Yahwehism was just confined to Israel. And so you get this idea that there were demonic forces outside of Israel that were in the spiritual realm sort of having their way, controlling things. But since Jesus' death and resurrection, there are limitations I don't take this language to be so literal that he's completely bound. I mean, this is one of the arguments back, that if, if this is now, if the millennium is now, this is the church age, well, how comes we still see deception and all these things? But that's to buy into more than literalism language. I mean, do you actually think there's a chain around him? You know, where, how far do you take this literalism? You know, what, what is the truth here conveying? This is an encouragement for those who have died. This is the progression, the parallel progressions. Those who have been beheaded, don't worry about them. They're reigning. They are on thrones in heaven. This is a time of opportunity for us to spread the gospel. You know the events of the end. You, we, we might not know, we don't know specifics, do we? Right? But how many people just, they ain't got a clue? They just coast through life, right? They're not thinking about the end. Um, 
this is a source for evangelism, for us to warn people before it's too late. I think that the contrast, you get this reference of when Satan's released, of Gog and Magog. You get a parallel ending here from Ezekiel 38 and 39. So in Ezekiel 38, 39, you get two chapters that speak about one battle of Gog and Magog. These were enemies in the north to Israel. And there's so many verses and allusions both to the battle the, the battle in Revelation 19 and 20, mirroring Ezekiel's ending. And then after that ending, you get him from 40 onwards talking about the new temple. Well, in Revelation, what do you get after chapter 20? The new heavens and the new earth. John is in the line of the Old Testament prophets, like Daniel and Ezekiel, in the prophesying through symbols, through visions. This is why I see it as one battle from different angles. And lastly, we get this reference of the great white throne judgment with the two books. You get this defeat of Satan and then the dead great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. You know, it's funny, right? You get this metaphor of books and books being opened. How many times do you get like politicians or career men that after the end of their careers, they write autobiographies, right? Tony Blair, the real story. And he wants to set the record straight and give you special insight as to why he made the decisions he made, right? And you get this with career people. But this is a time where you don't get to put the story right. It's not your story, right? God knows what we've done. God tells the story, and the books are opened. And notice you get the book of life, singular, and then you get the books, plural. Because in the book of life, we open Christ's righteousness. You know? None of us are in because of our own merits, or our own works. We're in because of Christ's mercy and grace. And that our names are in because of him. But for those who reject him. Those who are standing in their own righteousness. That want to make God their enemies. The books are opened. And. Yeah. Yeah. I heard a preacher once in a conversation with a Muslim talking about how does one get into heaven? And he said, well, there's scales. There's scales. You've got good deeds and your bad deeds. And if the good ones outweigh the bad ones, then I'm in. And the preacher said, so how are you feeling about that? And he said, well, I'm quite optimistic. And I thought, wow. Because if it was me... I wouldn't even be pessimistic. I'd be nihilistic. <laughs> it's finished. Do you know what I'm saying? If God just got out the books, you know, were you going to stand there before God on a white throne? In his, you know, the, the white throne of victory, of intense holiness and purity, and you, you're going to stand there and... I've done enough. <laughs> wow. So just to, to end this with some application. Um, Jesus is coming. He tells us to be ready. We don't know when he's coming. But the call is to stay awake. Be ready. Don't be foolish like the virgins 
in that parable. Do not be distracted with Babylon and her lies and her alluring nature to lie to you. And, and you know, it takes a lot of prayer and consideration as we think about what does it mean to come out of her? What does it mean to live in the world but not of the world, right? This is a call to faithfulness. Hang on. Jesus is coming and victory is coming. Vindication is coming. Relief, the deepest relief you could ever have. True justice. Finally, someone's going to put everything right. I think there's a call for us to warn before it's too late. Those who reject God or just coast on. Some of us, it's, it's family, it's friends, work colleagues, people we love. People we love are going to be at this scene in deep mourning. Have you ever just been frustrated at trying to convince someone of the gospel and they just won't listen? But on this day, they would have wished they had listened. They would have wished they had listened. And, you know, you can't scare people. I wish I could scare people, you know. You know, it, hell, hell is a difficult subject to talk on, right? But here we get references of lake of fire and burning sulfur and tormented day and night. The smoke of her torment goes up forever and ever. We need to warn people. We need to preach salvation. Come out of her. Her end, everything you see, the, the, the governments, the structures, all of it, one day, is just going to come to an end. And the only thing left is the king, to who it all rightly belongs to, right? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.